Hi everybody, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree. Today I am speaking with James Damore, who you guys may know of. He was fired from Google, I think early last year, 2018, um, for writing a memo to address some of the concerns that Google had put out there with a request for feedback um, about some of their um, their motivations to have more diversity in the tech industry, particularly for Google and particularly targeting women. That did not go down very well for James Amore and it's been a while since that happened. And um, I asked him to come on my channel and talk to me. I'm super excited to talk to him to maybe hear some updates and just revisit this issue, which is still going on in our society today. Hi, James. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> hey. Um, so could you just give us a recap of what happened and pay attention to your background and how you came up with the opinions you had and just your whole experience with the Google memo incident? Yes. So I had been working at Google for about four years and I had gotten to the point where I was starting to get more into leadership roles. So I wanted to actually, you know, help more with my team cohesion and you know, I saw some people weren't really speaking up. And so I started going to these diversity and inclusion meetings at Google. But, you know, once I got there, I realized that it wasn't so much about, you know, team cohesion and inclusion and encouraging a diversity of viewpoints and stuff. It was just how can we get more of certain types of people, particularly women and underrepresented minorities. And how can we tweak the system such that you know, more people join specifically, you know, get recruiters to target them and help them through the, um, you know, getting in such that we basically give them a boost in hiring. And, you know, I, I raised some questions there. I was quickly dismissed and, you know, I, I found the experience completely different whenever I would talk in a group versus individually, where if I talked to one people one-on-one, -on -one, it was generally like, yeah, I, I think that these things are kind of messed up, but I'm not going to say anything. But then once you speak up in a group, yeah. you know, no one supports you and, you know, one person's like, no, <laughs> you know? And so this, this secret meeting basically, like, it, it was one of the very few meetings at Google that isn't recorded. Uh, and it was just for the high up people in my organization. I, they asked for feedback. So I, I actually wrote out all my thoughts because, you know, I had just, you know, a lot of thoughts in my head and it seemed like the best way to organize them is just write out, um, write it out and try to lay out the system in my head. I gave it to them. I saw that they viewed it, but nothing happened. <laughs> and I actually went to a few more of these meetings because, you know, I had already signed up and <clears throat> I, I just wanted to see if other people would engage with ideas or, you know, if it was all just the same stuff. And eventually uh, the document became viral within Google and you know, there were a lot of people that privately messaged me and said, oh, yeah, wow, I, I support you, but I'm not going to say anything. And but there were, you know, select activists within the company that just spammed every 
message board with the same message of like, this is misogyny, this is bigotry, we need to stop this. And yeah, they got all the executives to denounce it and, or at least not all of them, but they got very many of them. And so, you know, it makes you question the people that didn't say anything, what did they think, you know? Uh, and eventually, yeah, I was fired. Okay, yeah, I, I thought that your document was very, very well written and researched. And I think you, you definitely tried to make sure that you weren't um, sort of demeaning towards the, the practices that Google was taking in order to um, increase representation of women and underrepresented minorities. Um, I thought that you did a really good job and something that struck me when I heard about your case and I included in that video that I, I made on it was that you were responding to feedback. That's very important. It wasn't some unsolicited document that you put out there to annoy your co-workers and harass them. And I think that that should really be stressed. Um, I did just do sort of, I went to your website, by the way, um, James does have a website, it's called firedfortruth.com. Um, yeah. And he's still looking for help there. So I, I think people should, you know, remember that he exists and go over there and um, help him out. And I read your TLDR. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of summarize what your main points were in, in the document and also give an idea of the other side or the side that you were kind of saying, hey, let's do a, a different, let's approach it in a different way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's been a while, but, uh, so I'll, okay. I think I, I first started talking about, uh, how, you know, politics isn't just, you know, those people are bad and uninformed and we are good and smart, which is what people often think of, you know, and, uh, that's the default case that you start to think about when everyone else thinks the same as you. And that ended up being the case at Google where there was so much leftist politics and, you know, encouraged by executives too in these company-wide meetings. And there were several other sort of internal social media platforms at Google that also pushed this. And so I was saying that there is value in other political viewpoints and by just completely shutting them out, we are losing value. And, uh, you know, just shaming other people into silence that exp express a different viewpoint is bad for Google. And particularly, uh, they've found one, um, one measure to be the best thing for teams. They call it psychological safety. And that's basically the ability to speak up your own opinion in at a meeting without you know fear of reprisal and so like all this shaming culture is the exact opposite of that and they won't acknowledge that because they've justified it in their head that no that those aren't even valid opinions those are hate and you know that's harmful and to us that's violence basically and so they're blind to their own shaming mechanisms. And so using that, I also, you know, it was basically conservative ideas were being uh, shamed out of the culture. And uh, the conservative and 
more libertarian viewpoints on gender are very different than the left-wing ones, where I mean, conservative ones are basically what is natural, or like what exists is natural and good, and uh, they are much more accepting of gender differences. And you know, I've I uh, studied biology in grad school, and particularly evolutionary biology because I've always been interested in you know the ultimate why questions. So, you know, I always ask why, like five times on everything. And it always goes down to evolutionary biology for like every social thing. And so once you start reading into this evolutionary biology, you see that there are reasons why men and women might have evolved to be slightly different. And that that actually shows up in some of our uh, disparities. And it's, I mean, there are, of course, a lot of arbitrary social norms that we could change and have changed throughout history, but we shouldn't ignore that there might still be some differences that we shouldn't necessarily, you know, seek to eliminate. Yeah. And, you know, there are also, there's the flip side of this too, where there's so many negative qualities that men have that we aren't trying to ha get women to have too. And there are so many disparities in males disfavor that we just don't care about, you know, like prison population and college dropouts and high school dropouts. And uh, so, you know, I, I basically laid out some uh, personality traits and particularly the uh, differing interest in people versus things. That's one of the largest uh, gender differences. And that uh, has been shown to be linked to uh, career choice very strongly. And, you know, uh, engineering is a very thing-oriented and system-oriented thing. Uh, you know, systemizing versus empathizing is similar to the people versus things uh, thing. And, you know, so, you know, I'm not the first one to even say this stuff. <laughs> But, uh, and then, you know, there are other things too, like, and this I, I eventually removed from the document, but I think it's actually pretty important is that men and women tend to score about the same on math tests now, but women score higher on verbal tests. And if you look at the type of people that go into engineering, it's actually the people that are high on math and low on verbal, because people that are high on verbal they don't need to be sitting in front of the screen doing random coding stuff all day. They, they end up going into product management or just some other more BS uh, career because those are in some ways easier, you know? And uh, like, that's not a diss on people that go into them. It's just, you know, people without the verbal skills can't do that and they can. And if you look at, Prog uh, program manager and product manager, that's actually 50-50 men and women. <laughs> so, you know, so I guess there was that part of the document and then the actual, you know, policy suggestions where I suggested that, you know, a lot of these programs aren't doing what they are intended to do. They are actually increasing tensions within the company. They are enforcing some moral standard that, 
is inherently asymmetric. And, you know, there are certain things that men aren't even allowed to talk about. And, you know, my firing was a perfect example of that where, I mean, I, I don't think that a woman would have been fired for what I did. And, you know, I've talked to several people and they were like, yes, men can't talk about certain things. And then I asked them, are there any things that women can't talk about? And they're like, no, of course not. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, there were several other things of just, you know, actually not being so hostile towards conservatives. And, you know, I don't actually have like a dog in this race because I'm not actually conservative, but it just seemed like the obvious thing to do. And it, it makes like all of tech so disconnected with the rest of the world if they are so isolated in their liberal bubble, right? And, you know, politics is definitely turning against them at this point. Yeah, um, sorry, I don't know if you're, if you're finished, but you were going for a while um, and yeah. sort of, no, it's okay, just moving towards stuff I was gonna ask later. Um, again, I, I think that you, you were saying that you were almost speaking when other people weren't willing to speak. So you weren't the only person um, thinking these things and you were sort of geared towards team cohesion and making sure that people's voices were, people felt more comfortable in um, their team space, which was kind of your job from what you're saying. Um, and uh, two of the things that you pointed out in your memo were that people, already know how to acknowledge much of their bias, such as, um, I don't know, like some prejudice based on gender, for example, but not their political bias. And so that was kind of what you were going for and what Google seems and many tech companies seem to be completely blind to. Um, and then I also wanted to talk about this difference between men and women, which, yeah, it's, it's not just you. Um, I also studied biology, but not, not at a master's level, but um, as an undergraduate, and I do think that most of the people who this is their expert field of knowledge agree with you. So you're not just, you know, drawing statements out of thin air, it's based on research. Um, and in terms of um, men looking at things more so than people, that's true. And then something else that you mentioned in your memo was men seek status, um, which is something that women are women are more likely to want to live a, have a balanced life. And um, there was this paper that talks about the, the greater male variability hypothesis, which is kind of what you talk about. Men have more variation. And I was just like re-looking at these things again in preparation for this interview. And something that really struck me was that uh, there is a, the, a theory surrounding the theory of why there is greater male variability. So you have more men at the higher and lower ends of some of the spectrum. So you have more men who are like CEOs and bosses and more men who are homeless and women tend to be more average. Um, and there were this theory, it's actually this paper. Um, it was by a, I'm not sure, he was a, I'm not sure what his title is, but there was someone called Theodore Hill, I think it was. Um, and I, I have it in one of my videos called So Much for Science, if anyone wants to go look up that paper. Um, and those, there were writers who wrote this paper. It was a mathematical model explaining the, the variability, male variability hypothesis. 
<laughs> and it was so funny to me um, because they were basically saying that the reason why men display more variability was because women choose, they select for that. You know, they, they, they more aggressively select, say, a guy with higher status than a, than a guy would who is like less selective. So a lot of these issues that we're seeing that are so so-called uh, due to the fault of men can actually turn back to how women are selecting men as their mates. You know, so I just thought that was that was that was super interesting. And I I I want to stress that this is this kind of information is not just opinion. And yes, empathy is important. And I think I I, I personally really liked your paper because you, you went from the facts to like, hey, but maybe there is something that we can do. Um, so I think it's awful that you're basically being socially negatively, socially sanctioned by being fired when you're actually trying to combine the facts and the reason, which is very important. You have you can't make decisions that are not based on reality with trying to solve solve the problem because you recognize that this is an issue that that people care about. Um, mm-hmm. So can you talk a bit about? the solutions that you yeah. came up with bringing uh-huh. yeah, more so, women into tech. So for many of the gender differences, there's a potential way that we could leverage that to increase the women's representation in tech. Like one was uh, because women tend to be more social, uh, pair programming, which is you know actually working with another person while you're coding, that could be something that women like more than men and you know this is something that no one has really studied, but you know maybe it works. <laughs> I mean, at least based on some theories like that, it seems like it could. Um, and you know another one was that women tend to be more cooperative than men. And our current promotion process, or Google's promotion process at the time, heavily favored people that just launched things, and there was no real way to measure oh, this person helped with these 10 other teams. And so they should, they are actually overperforming, you know. Uh, there was just no way to measure that. And they, so we should have, or Google should have changed their promotion process such that somehow this cooperative behavior, which seems good for Google, right, should be promoted. Uh, they were, and some other things about just stress management and mm-hmm. uh, I, there's general things in tech too where uh, you know the, there's a pattern in industries of the more an industry changes over time, the lower women's representation in it uh, because I mean the theory at least is that women tend to take time out of work to you know, raise a family for a little bit. And so they get that if they, for example, leave for five years and the industry has changed a ton in those five years, then they're in a huge disadvantage. And, you know, mm-hmm. so that could lead to them not coming back or not even choosing the industry in the first place. And, you know, tech is one of the biggest changing industries right now, right? So there may be ways in which we are actually hurting women by requiring that they know all the latest technology, for example. Um, I'm actually, I'm getting an MBA right now at a, 
at RPI, you might know of it actually, it's like heavily engineering school. So when you were talking about um, um, a lot of men being in engineering and the whole verbal versus math, I am higher on verbal um, than math. I'm just like okay with math. So I wouldn't compete like well with that stuff. Um, so I'm not offended by your <laughs> by your statement. I recognize it to be true. And I also think that those those kinds of people complement each other, especially when there are verbal people who maybe can't like write the code, but they can understand the technology. So they can say speak um, better on behalf of the people who are doing the, the more logic math brained work. Um, th but I was bringing this up because I was learning about some program by, I think it was Goldman Sachs, I think I can in include this, where they had this re-entry program, it was one of my classes, they were talking about it, where they were specifically targeting women who had left the workforce um, and making it easier for them to come in, get a short period of retraining, and then join the workforce again after having taken time off, usually for family. What do you think of, I mean, I was, when I heard that, I was like, well, is that really fair for the men? But like, that is one way that you can kind of help bridge that gap for when women leave. And these were particularly executives, um, you know, who had had experience in some kind of executive level position. What do you think of programs like that, for example? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that allowing people to re-enter the workforce and lowering the friction there is good. I don't know if it needs to be restricted to women that leave the workforce. You know, men can leave to start a family or just leave for some other reason too. I, mean, I, I don't know why it would necessarily need to be restricted to women. Yeah. I, I, I've, sorry. But no, I mean, I've just, you know, talked with women on why exactly we need women only programs when men are not asking for men only programs. And, you know, there seem to be some, you know, negative valence associated with men in general where, you know, men tend to be more likely at least to, you know, harass women than other women maybe, and they may not feel as safe around men because, you know, there's that very small chance that they'll like try to rape them or something. And, you know, if you just may feel safer to speak your mind and not be judged, or you don't want to have to present yourself as, you know, with all this makeup and stuff for the men, if there is, if it's just women, I, I don't like, I, I try to understand why we actually need women only programs because no one ever talks about why we actually do. Right. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't like them. I, I have this <laughs> video called like, please stop appealing to me as a woman. And um, I really don't like them. And I feel the same way about like racial stuff too. I, I don't, I just don't like the separation because I just, I feel as if we have these common issues. To me, they're common. Like they may occur more frequently for some group. Say you're being harassed or being discriminated against, but that's not a reason to exclude the people who are being less affected because they're not the people being more affected. It's something that anyone can experience. So I'm completely on your side. Um, and I think that the reason why, just basing on, um, going, based off of, going based off of what I hear people say, is that it's due to the statistical disparity. 
But like I said, I, I do feel as if it's still something common, even if it happens more frequently in one group or another. So I, I totally agree with you. I don't understand why it has to be restricted. It should just be looking at that specific thing, like they left and now they find it more difficult to re-enter the, the, the workforce or they don't feel safe. And um, speaking about, I, I do think that women women have more empathy directed towards them. I think for for men, they're more like lone wolves. So I'm not saying that they can't have their own support systems, they do. But as a society in general, I do think that men are expected to just like figure it out. <laughs> like if they're having a difficulty where women can more easily go and ask for help. And I do think that's unfortunate and um, restrictive. Um, and I, I think that, you, I don't know if you talked about it, but I think, do you, do you have any comments on like how gender roles restrict men and how, you know, it's, it, can't just limit helping people to to women any any thoughts on that kind of stuff yeah i i do have a short section on how men's gender role tends to be more restrictive than women's at the moment uh and yeah there's definitely a you know you can't really ask for help for men and you know because it's men are pretty much judged by their competence often while at least for you know romantic relationships women are more judged for you know looks and their caring aspects uh and so if a man asks something then that shows that they may be less competent and uh i mean this is also sort of explains uh mansplaining in some ways even though like it's unclear if that even happens that often i because you know women explain things to me i uh, but, you know, the motivation to explain things in general is to show off your competence, right? And if you're being constantly judged for your competence, then you're going to show that off. You know, why do women show wear makeup? It's to show off their physical beauty. Is that, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I guess, like, also uh, responding to your other point of, like, having programs that just help people with that problem. You know, there was an issue at Google where there were programs for uh, imposter syndrome and they only had it for women. They didn't have a one for men at all. While, What's in imposter syndrome? I imposter, have an idea, but not sure. Uh, it's the feeling that, you know, you, you don't deserve to be where you are, oh, right, which was yeah. pretty common at Google because there are so many smart people at Google. And yeah, yes, imposter syndrome is more common among women. It's actually related to neuroticism actually, but. Uh, oh, how, well, how, is, how is that related if, if you know? And I don't uh, mind, I think I'm definitely one of those people who are, I'm into the, the biology and like I understand it might hurt people's feelings, but um, you can say those things to me. Um, what did, what's the relationship if you know, you might not know the details between yeah. imposter syndrome and neuroticism? So neuroticism is basically your uh, tendency to have negative emotions. And oh, right, right. imposter syndrome is a negative self emotion about yourself. And uh, But I, it's just a random <laughs> tidbit. But mm -hmm. men get imposter syndrome too, and especially at Google. So it, it's a real shame that they don't have these programs that are general. Right. And, and they... 
they would just have so many. They would have like weekly meetings for this for women only, and then weekly weekly meetings. That's very well, often. Uh, it was that basically so every woman could have it. Oh, right, it wasn't right, right. that like they would come every week. It was you come on one of those weeks. Okay. While there was just nothing for men, or there was like one leadership summit that was for like anyone in general, but that was like once a year, and you had to apply, and it was like. 20 people while they had 50 women only ones like every week <laughs> i don't yeah i i why do you think that people are so afraid of looking at say like biological truths because wouldn't that you can see that stuff um and then be like i don't like this like i hate this and then move on from there but don't deny it you know why do people have such a difficult time just like acknowledging that the reasons for certain um, disparities might not be or might be due to some sort of uh i guess because i was going to say inherent traits and I, I guess they think that because of that that would admit defeat or admit that it's something unchangeable. And yeah, that could be true. But I do think that like, you have to start with the facts and you know, reality. Like, why do you think people have such a difficult time with that yeah. stuff? And I think that there's several reasons. One is that it's associated with right-wing things. And there's just a general disgust associated with anything conservative in these circles. Uh, mm -hmm. There's also a negative history where people have used you know, skulls or conference and random things to try to explain things. Uh, there's also the fear that this would just be misused to discriminate against people when, you know, I wasn't saying we should discriminate against people. I said we should stop discriminating and actually, you know, change how Google is to better suit different personality traits. Uh, I think there's also just the not the reduction of hey rather than thinking of it as a distribution and there are people that are high and low and in the middle thinking that average is everyone or something when i had a whole graph actually in the paper to try to go against that but it's basic biology um bell curve is it's like basic you see that in many traits in, including the non-contentious ones um can you talk a bit about the hiring the hiring practices because you're talking about oh it's a fair that people might misuse this information in order to be discriminatory but from what you're saying google is being discriminatory in um in trying to avoid other people being discriminatory uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, well, they don't acknowledge that reverse discrimination is discrimination. And uh, they just have these goals that they've set off where, you know, we want X percent of our engineers to be women or underrepresented minorities. And to get that percentage, it's different than the applicant pool. And so they have to basically discriminate. I mean, there's a lawsuit against YouTube about a recruiter that spoke out about practices where they were telling them, just drop all of your white and Asian male applicants. What? Only <laughs> yeah. when, when was this? Uh, this was January of 2018 that 
it came out or around then. Uh, um, YouTube. Can you go into some detail about the, this incident? Yeah. yeah, so he was a recruiter at YouTube and he, uh, at, at least according to him and according to some screenshots. Do you remember it, his name? It's okay if you don't. I just yeah, I, I don't remember specific. at this point. That's um, okay. But he, he got orders from his managers to you know, only focus on uh, underrepresented minority, diverse candidates. And at some point, they had quotas. And once they fit the quota for white and Asian males, basically the non-diverse people, then uh, they would just drop all of the applicants for that fit that category. And then only, uh, only focus on the others. And they would constantly, I, he, at least according to him in the lawsuit, uh, it was, Google would tell them to delete the emails telling them this, and they would just constantly berate them if they didn't get enough of these candidates. And I, I so that was one perspective. And then, I mean, when I went to these uh, meetings, they would explicitly say that, yes, we do help them and we make sure that they get into Google and which is completely contrary to what they would say publicly within the company wide meetings. And that was sort of what broke me was I was sort of in the Google cult before this, but then once I realized that they're just lying to us, then I, I, I felt like something needed to be done. Yeah, I, I, I have a real issue with that kind of mindset. Um, I talk about it a bunch on my channel, but when I was going to school, you got in trouble if like you, well, my school was a bit strict, but like you got in trouble if you were wearing, you like you colored your hair or you like your socks weren't the right length or your, your, the heels weren't too, were too high. And all of that seems simple, but the point I'm trying to make is that you had standards. And like, if you didn't meet those standards, well, you got in trouble just like everybody else. And I, I, I really, really strongly detest um, the lowering of standards. I, I hate it so much because I feel as if you hinder growth and you're basically de-incentivizing forward movement for that group of people in this arena where you're lowering the standards for them. And okay, you're going to get what you want in the short run, but I think in the long run, which is more important to me, I, th I think you're really doing a disservice to these groups of people. So I, my audience knows this. I feel super strong. I, I hate it. Like I absolutely hate when they do those things. And that's my opinion. There are people who I've, I've told this to and they've been surprised at my opinion, but I, I think it's because of my background and where I come from and not this constant trying to recorrect for the past. Because, you know, that's what they're doing. They're like, oh, well, it's a fault of the past. So we're going to recorrect for it to try and get exactly what we want in the moment, regardless of the immorality of it. Because the fact that they're lying, like you're talking about, they have a, a private thing they say in private or they want people to delete emails and they have this secrecy and cover up. And then they say something else to the, the public something's wrong like you sh if you're having to do those kinds of things and it's already wrong and then i also find it highly immoral because it's unfair 
to the applicants and if you if you take away the things that we claim shouldn't be important such as like their outward appearance um then <clears throat> oh sorry if we take away those things then you should be able to see each person as equal so it's unfair the only reason why you would have to discriminate in this way in order to help these underrepresented groups is because you are acknowledging that there are these differences that you don't want to acknowledge. The fact that you have to do that means that you're saying, well, well, they're saying that it's because of society, but they're essentially saying they're not equal. And so we have to make it equal. And they say that it's because of society and discrimination, but I don't think it is because there's also well, not only that, there's also the biological perspective. Yeah, my main point is that I, I think it's wrong and immoral to, to do those to do those things. Yeah, uh, I, I think that there's a general, just they only look at potential uh, discrimination or how uh, women are raised differently and therefore that is the cause of everything and they're unwilling to look at other reasons. And yeah, I, I think that there is some aspect of coding, at least historically, wasn't considered cool. And women might be more influenced by that than men. But there's not this, oh, men, you go into coding. And women, no, you don't go into coding. It's more, hey, coding is full of nerds. And who is going to go into nerds and like care about how they look to society more? I think. Women care more about that in some ways, especially in high school. While, you know, there's, especially if you look at like within autism, which is, you know, there's a lot of people in tech on the autism spectrum and they generally don't care about their social appearance, partly because they're not really aware of it. I mean, I'm speaking for myself too. Um, like they'll easily like go into, you know, I was in chess club and I was, I was like, a nerd and I didn't care and I was awkward for sure I'm still am and yeah I, I think that that explains much of the uh, you know discomfort that women sometimes feel in tech is because it's full of awkward nerds it's not that it's you know sexist tech bros it's just awkward nerds and you know they're the uh, you know, instances of sexism that I've heard about have been mostly like, oh yeah, they're just so awkward. They don't know how to interact with me and they ask me out and like, oh, God forbid they ask you out. Like, it, but um, I mean, obviously unwanted sexual attention is annoying. And hmm. like when there is a gender disparity, then there may be more unwanted sexual attention in the minority, right? But you know, you, I, I think so much of it is that particularly recently, like men don't know how to interact with women at all. And, you know, they don't know if you can even ask out a coworker, like, especially like at an 80,000 person company. I think it's reasonable that you could ask out a coworker, especially since you basically live on campus at Google and that is your entire life. But there's just like so much awkwardness, particularly with the recent Me Too stuff of, you know, how can I even interact with a woman? And, you know, I, I see the disparity myself where women are free to like talk about anything 
sexual or uh, you know touching borderline uh, subjects, while men will just completely stay away because they know that the punishment is completely asymmetric, and so they they just don't know what the rules are. Well, yeah, I think again that sort of. <clears throat> comes down to the bio biology factor um, and I think I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about it a bunch I'm sure he's not the only one who has but just because more people are likely to know him about how we haven't really negotiated how workplace interactions between men and women should be and if we're de facto giving women the upper hand which is kind of how biologically this the species is, is geared you know because women choose so men men want to be able to pass their genes on so they basically do what the woman wants that's very like crude but like that is kind of what happens in in society um so i don't really have the answer to that but i do think that that's an actual issue to be discussed um particularly the the, the say men making sexual advances towards women in the workplace like i i remember i was working as um an emt once and there was this guy who like I was working with and he like hit on me and I, I really hated it. I was like, we're at work. Like I didn't say that. I just kind of avoided and ignored him. But like I was I was really like I didn't like it. Like I didn't like that he did that. And I think I would I would have been fine because I think I'm the kind of person to, you know, like speak up and say stop it or something. Whereas I think some women I, I know because I've had friends who are, are much more timid and they're less likely to like say something. So I think that's an actual issue, but I don't have the answer to how you resolve that kind of stuff. Um, and in terms of the women being more, uh, caring more about things being cool um, and a lot of nerds, I guess, being in tech, I think that's true. I do think that a lot of super smart people in terms of the um, the mathematical logic, that's my term for it, even though that's probably not the right phrase. They do tend to be like lacking social skills. Um, so not all of them. Um, I, I don't think it's like, I don't mind it most of the time, but I, I do think that's true. Um, and that's just like what happens. It Maybe, you know, there's only a certain amount of resources, mental resources, the brain is able to devote to certain areas. So like when you, you're high on one particular trait like the verbal one you're a little less than that and like vice versa um so yeah I've, i haven't really heard people talk about that about that being part of the reason why men might gravitate more towards something that's uncool um even though it's provides the most economic value so you kind of get paid more to do it at least for now that might change but yeah that is just something else to, to consider yeah yeah I I don't know why, I mean, obviously I think it's generally just that putting women as a victim is much easier for people to accept. Like it's easier to see women as a victim rather than men as a victim. And you know that is part of why they do it. I just think it's long-term unsustainable to be lying about these things and not tell the truth because yeah, and not acknowledge male perspective on these things because once you 
acknowledge that men have a perspective and it's not immoral as like they often project the male perspective as just evil like that's all all men's rights activists are just misogynists and all these things and obviously some are but not all of them and uh i think once you start acknowledging that then you can really open men up and allow them to acknowledge that okay yeah women do have a different perspective men have a different perspective they're both valid and let's work forward rather than you know women are wonderful men suck <laughs> and yeah it's kind of crazy <laughs> yeah you're what <laughs> no i'm just like yeah all all you men are toxic and like, there's just a basic pathologizing of male behavior because the only ones that are able to talk about gender are women and of course the other is always you know it's different than you and you know there's some conflict associated with men and women and so you will start to pathologize this and like we see this too with play fighting for example where you know it's very common for little boys to play fight with each other it's not common at all for little girls to do that and so uh women that aren't raised with other little boys and see that they will often think that all those boys that are play fighting they're actually fighting and we should stop that that is toxic behavior i mean the Gillette commercial even had some boys that were fighting and laughing and smiling and then they were like no don't do that so they they start characterizing just typical healthy uh male behavior as toxic because they men aren't allowed to talk about their own perspective <laughs> you know it, i i and like another thing is you know Jordan Peterson's audience may be predominantly male i i mean it's probably mostly male i don't know what the actual percentages are and that is seen as a negative for whatever reason although you know there are plenty of people with 90 plus percent you know female audience like oprah or something or a lot of these talk shows and you know that's not a negative at all <laughs> so like how is jordan peterson divisive because he has mostly male but these other people aren't divisive you know it's because men are seen as inherently bad in some ways yeah i i think that's true and um talking about this perspective thing i do think that if you want to have an actual conversation you do have to allow every single voice to be heard not just the voice that say brings up the issue because they're like oh well um if there are two parties that have some well one party brings up a disagreement when he or she's interacting with the other party the first party that br brings up a disagreement isn't the only person that has a say you know like the other per party needs to be able to interact because a lot of assumptions are going to be made like you're talking about women they're raised differently and they they experience social interaction differently so you you're going to have a bunch of assumptions that you can't rectify without speaking to the other side um so i think that applies to pretty much any issue in society and i was just going on about this a little bit on twitter very late last night um but people's varying ideas and perspectives need to be heard because the situation isn't black and white 
um, and it isn't say positive or just negative one or the other. It's 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 just varying ideas because everybody has a um, a unique experience and history that they apply to the interactions that they have with the world. So I hope that that happens soon. Yeah. Like people acknowledge the different sides and allow them to be heard. I don't know if it will, but I, I, that's something I really hope for because I think that's how we move forward is to like have proper discussion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think people are generally heavily invested in their own objectivity and the truth of their own perspective. And it's harder to acknowledge that other people have different experiences and that their perspective might be valid on these subjective issues. And it, especially on Twitter or something where you only see an icon and you don't see them as a person, it's really difficult. I, I, I actually don't really read Twitter anymore. <laughs> I only make occasional posts. But because I, I see a lot of it just reducing people because, I mean, I see the you know, own incentives whenever I post of if I do make this really, you know, if I straw man the other argument and I make it as angry as possible or something, then I will get more likes or something. And, you know, it's natural human behavior to you know, associate like just dopamine networks of, okay, yeah, that was good. So I'm going to keep doing that. And if you see people on Twitter all the time and they're just like having these snarky comments that are net negative to the world and like, you can see that it's just taking over their brain or something. No, I, I, I totally know what you mean. Twitter is a weird place. Um, and that's, that's politics in general. I, I do think it's, you know, they reduce, they reduce arguments and they reduce people also in like what they represent or, or what they stand for. Um, I wanted to ask you what your experience has been like after the incident. Um, what's it been like for you in almost any aspect? Like if you've had some personal change or if your perspective in terms of the, the intellectual ideas that you had put out there maybe changed, could you talk about that? Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess in terms of career, it took me a while to find another job. Um, I did a lot of interviews, like a hundred plus and a lot of anonymous ones where you can just do the coding and it'll be a video chat without the screen. So it's supposed to take away a lot of the bias of these things. And I passed every single one. But then whenever my name was revealed, I'd, they just stopped communication. So that was unfortunate. Hopefully that level of you know being afraid to be associated with me will lessen over time, especially if um, I get in some ways vindicated by the lawsuit that may show where the uh, what is socially acceptable uh you know personal wise i've yeah I've, it's hard for me to stop being obsessed with certain things <laughs> which is common with autism actually uh so i you mean I, interested in certain topics That's yeah i'm just like okay. obsessed in some ways of you know i have to read more and i have to acquire as many facts as possible <laughs> oh i see and 
you know, I really want to understand the world. And, you know, there are some things I'm just generally confused about and I can, I'm at least humble enough to acknowledge that I don't understand. And so I've been reading a lot about that and just, uh, you know, economics and politics in general of, because I've become more and more weary of concentrated power. And, you know, I was more libertarian, um, before when I wrote the memo, but I have been just doubting that more and that at least the implementation of it and the simplification that people often make of just, okay, the government is horrible, private enterprise is great, when you know private enterprise is itself concentrated power and in many ways unaccountable for some of these things, especially once they have a monopoly like many of the tech companies do sort of have now. And I mean, I, I just think that things are much less black and white, as you were saying that uh, than people um, say, and <clears throat> people will just have these associations in their head of, Oh, that side says this one thing and like, Oh, socialism is ho horrible. And, you know, without, really looking at why and what and you know i mean even I, i'm not defending communism per se but i think that people simplify the, the arguments too much and don't realize that you know communism started in the countries that were the weakest economically because those were the easiest to overthrow the capitalist people so you know russia was one of the poorest countries in Europe, and then you know China was also poor, and just all of the other communist countries were very poor. And then after that, we put huge economic sanctions against them. So like, you can't look at oh yes, they they failed economically because of communism when there were so many other factors too. And you know, it's I think that people fail to acknowledge that. The world is complicated and that just, I mean, I, I've also just been reading about horrible things that uh, I, every country does, like just more real politic type stuff of, you know, the CIA interfering with other countries. And <laughs> I, I think that that in general makes you just, you know, pessimistic about what the government is telling you. And, you know, there's, underlying motives behind a lot of these things and behind a lot of our foreign interventions and I what, sorry just because you brought this up <laughs> what do you think about the the venezuela stuff that's going on right now like in terms of the u.s and the, the, the president and declaring who they acknowledge as the formal president that kind of stuff uh yeah i so i actually don't really pay attention to politics or like news that much i mean i the little that i know it seems like the, uh, they have just an autocracy within and a ton of corruption within Venezuela. Uh, like the currency manipulation such that only the high up people are able to get dollars on the cheap. Uh, like they're just destroying their own people and they have the military support to do so and to fake their own elections. Uh, but I, I don't really know what's happening. Okay. Beyond that. Uh, I mean, I don't want 
the U.S. to intervene militarily, which is a potential in the future. And just because I'm a general interventionist and I think we have, there's too many incentives to intervene, like the military industrial complex type incentives that, and the media is in bed with a lot of that. You know, it's very easy for the media to plant stories supporting, for example, the Iraq war and the previous wars that we should generally be uh, critical of any pro-interventionist uh, stories just because there's there are certain people, very strong people, are interests that gain from these military interventions. Um, okay. Could you continue on the your description of how your ideas have changed because I kind of interrupted you? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I've generally tried to, you know, understand the perspective of, you know, why do people want these programs uh, and just, you know, I've, I've tried to understand some of the more you know, I, I, I read the book White Fragility. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. Uh, so it's pretty prominent within the diversity and inclusion uh, people. I don't know. Like it was shared within Google, too. And uh, the basic argument or definition of white fragility that she presents is that, you know, white people are generally discomfort, like they feel discomfort when and racial stress when confronting racial issues and racial inequality and you know i think that the book has some strong points and she's actually very introspective the author sorry i just want to pause you was that claim about white people being stressed when they encounter racial when was it you know when the book came out and was that uh, statement based on like data or was that just the author <laughs> based on like her own interactions with yeah so it came out within the last few years and she is one of these diversity um program uh presenters like she goes into companies and does these diversity programs okay. and so it's based a lot on her personal experience and so i mean i think that yes it is true that you know white people are uncomfortable talking about racial issues i think that I mean, her explanation is that it threatens the racial status quo where white people are on top. And, you know, I, I mean, I think that, you know, there are other reasons like the fact that there are so many penalties for white people talking about race, like, you know, the potential to be called racist and be t totally socially uh, ostracized for doing so that, she doesn't really confront at all. And, you know, if it was purely based on this hierarchy that people don't want to acknowledge because it would threaten it, then, you know, attractive people wouldn't want to talk about attractiveness helping people. When I've never experienced that. I haven't seen this attractiveness fragility in people. And, you know, I, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that, you know, tall guys have some advantages, even though I'm six foot three, like, and, you know, she also, which makes a point which many other people do of like, oh, only white people can solve the problem because they have the power. 
But you know, this is acknowledged <laughs> some like homogeneity within white people that they all have the same perspective. And you know, going back to the attractiveness issue, like if that is also a hierarchy, then you know, then you would be saying that only attractive people have the power to challenge that system. But no, like we could just give them. Everyone else could give attractive people less status, but we don't want to because we like attractiveness. You know,、um, but yeah, I, I think that there are some valid points of just. You know, white people aren't don't experience racialization in America as much as、uh, minorities do, but that's basically because they're not a minority. What you do know, you mean I, racialization? Like they they don't experience the idea that oh that is a white person. While like you know so many people may be described as、uh, an Asian author, African American author, or something, while no one is described as a white author. You know, they may be described as a science fiction author, and I mean, you're from Jamaica. You you probably didn't experience much racialization because everyone is black, right? And so, not I, not everyone, but no,、yeah. I I I was actually really sad when I realized that I started doing that because I never did it used to do it at all. Like I really didn't see, it, which I know a lot of people don't understand or like wouldn't believe, like from America. But that's not something I really paid attention to. Um, and I also think it's kind of toned down a bit in my own self, which is good. But I definitely am not the same person as like when I when I initially came here.、Um, and I just want to say a couple things. I first want to say that I think it's BS that you had so much trouble finding work, and I'm sorry that that happened to you.、Um, and then about this、um, this diversity program initiator person. <laughs> should not be using. I I see this all the time. Just because she feels really guilty for her skin color, I guess, and like sees all these disparities and has her explanation for it. I don't think that she should be even allowed to be out there speaking on behalf of like all the other white people out there. You know, and like if you if she hadn't actually gone around and like did some surveys. From like all the different parts of America or whatever, and had people's opinions and then presented those things. That's another matter, which is like one of the first questions I ask. Like you, you can't make a claim without having some data to support it, and like anecdotal data, that's useful if you like get it from various people. But if it's only like you and like your experience and like the people you talk to, which are going to be selected through some metric I don't know based on where you live or like what you studied or blah blah blah, then I don't think that's applicable. That you can just go out there and share that as like, well, well, I know the problem based on my experience. Here's the solution. Like that's that. Why are they even doing that? Especially tech companies. Like, aren't they like super data based? Or I, I don't know if this is only tech companies, but that's weird. Like, why would someone like just write a book and then just because everyone like, not everyone, but a lot of people, it resonates with them. They can't just like put that on everybody else. And I see that all the time. Like, of course, your your experience is real. Like, maybe you feel uncomfortable. Fine, but all you're doing is like exposing everybody else to your idea. And so everyone's like, oh well. Do I feel this way? You know, I think I'm. I, I really think that happens. I think that like if you're exposed to a certain idea enough, you will begin to incorporate it. Especially if you don't have your own very firm internal grounding, which I think a lot of us don't. Um, <clears throat> which is a, like another 
issue. And the, the I already talked about the racialization thing. I I I do find it very annoying too. Where um, I guess white people are seen as the norm. However, I do think that happens in other countries too, where like the majority population is like right. another race. Like that that totally happens. This is not something I really thought about. And I remember I I was commenting on one of my videos. I don't remember which one about this. But like when I was growing up in Jamaica, there's like a like a smaller like Asian minority. And I would definitely say like you don't see like you don't see them that much. Like you, occasionally you do like on like billboards or something like that. It's like almost always black people because they are the majority in the country. Like, okay, it might be an issue, but it's completely normal from what I see in different countries around the world. Like that's just what happens. And um I keep referencing my own experiences, but I, I met this guy at this VR um, exhibition thing um, and I was telling him you know something that does annoy me like I do remember growing up and like not really seeing any black people on in ads like that's totally changed completely but I remember that like I, I, I remember seeing that on because like on Jamaican TV you had a lot of foreign ads and like foreign television programs and stuff um, so like there are some things that yeah I think it's great that people were like hey well maybe we need a little bit of like, oh, well, there are other people watching your content that maybe you didn't realize were and you need to appeal to them too. But I don't think it comes from this, like, malicious, like, just the result of slavery. Oh, like, nobody cares. Like, I don't think it's the it's with that malicious intent that all the people assign to it, you know? Right. And I also think it's already, for the most part, been solved. And they're, like, <clears throat> because things are so much better now, they now have to be making up horrible incidents because the tides have kind of changed somewhat. Yeah, I, there are definitely economic reasons for a lot of these things of just, especially in America, maybe where white people tend to have more wealth. And so they may be, uh, things may be catered more to them, especially uh, compounded with their majority in the population. Uh, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't say that she shouldn't be allowed to say these things. I mean, or to project them just because it's very hard to draw that line. And, but I, I do think that it's important to confront some of her issues. And I think that generally there has been this polarization such that they are literally speaking different languages because people aren't willing to engage with other ideas. And so, you know, one thing that I found striking and it actually explained a lot of what I've seen and was confused about before is they have different definitions for racism and meritocracy than the general population where, you know, generally racism is, you know, discrimination or hatred for a different race while their racism is this sociological uh, system oriented such that, you know, people with power can use that. And therefore only white people who have a majority of the power can be racist. And yeah, so they, she throughout the book is like, you shouldn't be afraid of being called racist because it's not that horrible thing. It's this one sociological thing when really, no, this is, this is the definition that everyone uses. And, you know, just because you try to redefine it because that's what they say in sociology doesn't mean anything. Just like she, she doesn't acknowledge that. I, so her counterpoint is that, this is actually a defense mechanism, this, you know, all racists are evil type thing. 
because it lets you separate yourself from all racism. Because you can see from yourself that you're not a part of the KKK and you're not some horrible person. So you, you must not be racist. You're not complicit in the system, which I mean, I think is actually a valid point. But, you know, this is the definition of what people call racism. <laughs> and so you really need to use a different word and not like it's just hurting your own cause of trying to compound the two. Like she is actually trying to use some of the negative valence associated with racism in her sociological one. And then meritocracy also is <clears throat> one because, uh, you know, meritocracy, the general definition is people should be judged based on their, how good they are at, or like at a particular task, for example, and they should be hired solely based on talent and rather than other issues like gender and race and stuff. While her definition of meritocracy is, and I think I've seen this in other social justice oriented things is uh, a statement of fact of the world is based on merit and that all the people with current power are there because of merit rather than because of their privilege and because their parents were rich or anything, which, and of course that's not totally true. And that's why they say meritocracy is a myth when, but saying that the idea that we should be going towards some ideal, like it doesn't even make grammatical sense that that would be a myth, you know? And so when they just diverge and people aren't talking to each other, they start saying things that are just like completely offensive to the other side. And because they're using different definitions for words, like it, so I think that some, there needs to be more cross dialogue and less polarization. And, you know, even if these things seem, you know, completely wrong and they're stupid or something, I think that there is some merit to it, but it just requires a different way of thinking often. I, I think you're more sympathetic um, <laughs> <laughs> towards what they're saying than I am. I, I, um, you like, you, you like, you think this person should be able to talk, but I think that if you're having to redefine words, which is what people like who push those kinds of ideologies do all the time, I don't, I think you need to bring your conversation to the public, not expect the, con the public to like conform to your changing definitions. So, um, I'm probably not going to read that book. <laughs> not like I think I would have maybe like a year ago, but I am at the point where I'm I'm pretty sick of all of this stuff, you know? Like yeah. <laughs> for me it was more like what the hell is going on? Like that's what it was like for me cuz I you know I'm, I came from like a different space. And now I kind of have like a grasp of it and I'm like this is so stupid. Like I I I don't I understand that like I'm probably still going to get pissed off and I'm probably going to talk about it more than I want to. But to me, it's like all starting to sound very repetitive because I'm no longer like encountering it the way I was before. I've like now already encountered it. I've now already like seen this, like understood a bit how this culture works. Um, something you had mentioned uh, is like people, the penalties for, um, well, when you're talking about race, white people, but also when you were talking about gender for men, 
for people discussing certain things is really harsh. So people tend to stay quiet. And that's something that I, I noticed too, that I wasn't used to. Um, so a lot of people might, you know, like beat me and discover that I like, I will talk about things that other people won't talk about, but I'm not trying to talk or I wasn't trying to talk about things that other people were, wouldn't talk about. It was just like, I didn't understand that. Oh, there were these like subtle social things where like, you're not supposed to talk about certain things, which yeah. Like I said, in terms of all perspectives needing to be heard, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, how can you have this huge, huge, you know, issues like, say, like Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement? They're like huge societal issues that everybody's talking about. And you're trying to make policy decisions on, but people can't talk. Like, it just doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Um, so I'm really against that, and I I don't know. I I'll just keep like making my videos and you know, talking about things, but it it really doesn't make sense to to do that um is there anything else like that white fragility book that you like you've you've been reading or uh, i just general things to try to understand the world and the underlying motives for example behind why these moral systems come about and different social norms because i think that it's really interesting why we have certain social norms and you know what that these unspoken rules are for and uh, you know I I don't maybe it's just because a lot of this psychology doesn't intuitively make sense to me like I have to create some underlying system to understand it because all social norms I just like I dislike generally and I, I don't, I need like a logical explanation for them before I will follow them. And so just, you know, I think it's really valuable to understand why is it exactly that men can't talk about gender or that white people can't talk about race. And, you know, I think that there's a lot that you can understand about uh, the world when you look at these unspoken rules. I mean, my explanation is that people are irrational. You know, that's kind of my explanation for this stuff. Like you're approaching it from logic so that you can understand it. Um, but like, it's really clear to me that uh, people don't follow logic. You know, like you're, you're, I'm talking to you and there are people who say, watch my channel, but there are a lot of people who, there is no like feeling trying to understand the logic like for and against the input like the informational input that you heard that gave you the feeling it's just feeling oh somebody had to answer well that's the answer i i do think that's how a lot of people work um and you see it a lot in like celebrity culture like where they say things and it like influences people you know, it's, it's basically a lot of people can't think for for themselves, um, or don't or choose not to or whatever. I'm not I'm not trying to say that they don't have the capacity, but they don't. They don't. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think it's due to like a, I've decided that I don't even in myself too. I think I behave irrationally sometimes. <laughs> I do. Um, so it's like I think if we understand that. Um, then it, it provides some understanding and it's it's not good, I guess, but it's just the way it is, you know? Yeah. So I, Although, with that. 
I would push back a little bit just to say that I think labeling something as irrational is overly simplistic because there is likely some reason still for their behavior. And if you just quickly create this label of you know stupid or irrational, then that stops your investigation of the behavior. And there may still be underlying motives that may not even be conscious of them. You know, there's this system that is created and, you know, some of these things of just going along with the crowd, there there are reasons for that. Like it's there aren't that many motives for investigating the truth. You know, being having good social standing is often better than knowing the truth. But you know, I have a particular incentive structure in my head of just really liking understanding the world. And so my social my incentives are maybe different than general, but I've paid costs for that for sure. You know, like the Google memo in particular. <laughs> but uh, like there are reasons why people may do that. And you know, I think that it labeling it as irrational when really it is in their best interest to do these certain things may uh, prevent you from understanding what's actually happening and like how we could actually change things such that behavior would change, right? No, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like the, maybe I shouldn't have said irrational, um, but when I say rational, I mean, say to, say for like this lady who wrote the white fragility book. To me, it's, it's already irrational if she is only going from her own experience, right? However, her motivation might be because she really cares about the disparity that she sees. Or it could be, um, what do you call it? Um... She wants to have social standing, like you said, like the kind of virtue signaling thing. Um, I, I, I do think that, um, like, for example, I now see a lot of the, the left as racist. Like, I, I actually see that now. Um, like, in, I, I, I don't like their racism more than everybody else because I think that a lot of people in general, like in the U.S., are racist in terms of like being obsessed with race like seeing everything through a racial lens i do see them as racist but i do think that there are people who might have gone down that path truly because they like saw disparity and were like what's going on you know but then i think that might tie into other internal things they have going on that like don't actually have to do with the situation at hand like say like their family history or like maybe they feel guilty because they had some like friend growing up that they like saw themselves do better than and they you know like it could be a lot of different reasons um but i do think like when i say irrational it's more like the line of logic they're following i don't agree with but not like they don't have like deeper like psychological motivations that maybe i don't understand i don't hope that's kind of clear maybe i shouldn't use the word mm. irrational because it's like demeaning in some way uh -huh. yeah i mean i think Generally, these people are 
at least some are authentic and they believe what they're saying. And, you know, she does cite some sociological things in her book and, uh, you know, there's obviously motivations of, you know, if I write a book, then I'll become more famous and I'll become an authority on this. So you, know, you can question some of the incentives behind that. But I, I don't think that that makes her ideas less uh, worthy of engagement, for example. Uh, I, I think that also there's a perspective shift necessary where they they may be acknowledging that you know this system exists and you know it can favor those with money or those in the majority or those that have historically like in the history books uh, and without applying any moral judgment on that so they may be saying yeah companies are just doing whatever is in their economic best interest but that tends to disfavor people in the minority for whatever reason and that that's just something to acknowledge and that maybe we should push incentives a different way, especially, I mean, uh, the left uh, moral system tends to be trying to equalize outcomes in some way and helping those that are most vulnerable. And you'll hear that a lot of, we must help those that are most vulnerable, the most disadvantaged, uh, marginalized parts of our community while the right is not concerned about that really at all. And I mean, I think that it is a valid concern of keeping everyone not marginalized because I mean, one that those people are hurting and also it's just negative for the society to have an underclass basically that may push them towards negative behaviors, you know, if they are that way. And, uh, so, I mean, I think, though, that these things just have to be balanced such that, you know, we have to acknowledge that there are trade-offs in the world and that we can't do everything and focus everything on, you know, fo helping people that might be marginalized, that there are other things in the world and <laughs> that one's identity group is not the only way that they can be marginalized in a way and that particularly in tech, like, your social skills are still important and that there are many autistic people or on the autism spectrum and that that's just generally not acknowledged that like that that even really exists. And, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, I was, I encountered this in my company too, where we were deciding on how to interview people and, you know, they were suggesting these ways in which someone that, doesn't instantly get social cues would be completely disadvantaged because they didn't set out the expectations of the interview at all. And, you know, if you just expect them to have your own perspective and to know all that, then, you know, you will be really hurting these people that don't really understand intuitively or instantly these unwritten rules. But, I don't. Know, I, I just think that we generally have to be more accepting and uh, just more willing to hear other perspectives. I agree with. I agree with that. Um, that I think there will always be struggle, ideological struggle. Um, 
I mean, I guess that will probably never end. But for now, those people on the, the quote-unquote left are kind of pushing all their voices out. And, you know, I do think that that would shift or might shift in the future. Like, it won't be them. But right now, I don't like what they're doing. <laughs> like, at the moment. Yeah, although I think uh, just to balance that a little bit, if your perspective of what the left is is mostly shaped by, for example, Twitter, social media, or some other things, uh, you may also want to see, you know, right-wing Twitter and how they may also have some of the same extreme behavior and that, you know, I grew up in a religious family and, you know, that also can be negative. And so that, but that does, that's not really representative of the common experience and that, you know, the things that get the most likes on Twitter is not, that's often more extreme than what people actually believe. Most people, I think, are on, in this middle ground of just sick of everything else and they acknowledge it, but they're just afraid of a lot of this political correctness type stuff. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't label, you know, people's behavior if, if you haven't really talked with them in person and realize that, hey, they actually are basically the same as me. And, you know, maybe they disagree on this one thing, but that's because they have this particular belief and they have reasons for that belief. And, you know, if it's really just, you know, different vocabulary that we're using and we're associating with different tribes. And, but other than that, we basically agree on everything and that all this disagreement is really preventing us from coming together with the things that we actually care about. You know, there's a lot of economic issues that I think people generally agree about and that we just don't end up talking about because we're so concentrated on these cultural minutia that are just overblown by the media. But. Yeah, when I said quote unquote the left, I, I do like acknowledge the sort of extreme, that's like an extreme version of people who are more um, trying to equalize things. And um, I do, my introduction to the U.S. Um, was um, at a, like a small liberal arts college, which was very progressive, you know, and I did enjoy my time there. So I do have a lot of experience kind of interacting with people like that, especially coming from like a very fresh perspective of not being involved in American politics at all. Um, so I... When I was thinking about, when I was talking about the quote-unquote left, I was more meaning like having institutional power and like censoring other people. So, and I recognize that that's a very specific subset of, say, the left, you know, because to me, it's like not, it's not really the ideas, even though like I might disagree with them and I understand that, yes, these ideas come out into like policy that will influence people it's more the subtly using like institutional power 
to silence voices. Like that's like where my main issue comes in, not like the disagreement, even though I understand that like what I want might not occur in the long run because they shared their voices. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think generally increasing engagement is part of the solution for that because so much of you know why tech will tend to censor right-wing views is because they don't understand it and their only experience of that is what the left-wing media tells them about it which will obviously be the most extreme evil perspective of you know that aspect and so i mean just as we shouldn't be labeling anyone that is left-leaning as like a social justice warrior like i mean it's equivalent to them labeling everyone that's right-wing as a nazi right and mm -hmm. I, I think it's generally just not understanding that other perspective. And, you know, there is still merit and, you know, it's, they're in a tough position too, where, you know, there will be people that will say these kind of nasty things. And, you know, they, if you, you don't really want to be on a platform where there is this nasty stuff happening, right? Like, I mean, I've seen forums where there is no censorship at all. And it's just like people just trolling constantly and saying these really racist stuff. And I, it's because partly that's the only place that they can say it. But again, it's just, I don't want to engage with that at all. It's, and so they want people to engage on their networks, so they will try to make it as friendly as possible. And what their definition of friendly may be different than the general population's definition of friendly, though, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's an issue where um, it's like, well, these people have nowhere else to go, but you can't, like, delete them from society. You know, it's, it's like they're there. <laughs> and... Um, you, I don't, I don't really know. I, I, I think that if you, that where are they going to go? Cause they're not going to disappear. So I don't, I don't really know what the answer is. I do know, I, pref I would prefer that there's like a general space where you can kind of, like you have a hard rule, like the, say the incitement to violence stuff. And then I do think that people will downvote stuff. Like people downvote really negative comments all the time. But then it's almost as if if you're trying to weed out the bad to the point of exterminating it, it's just going to develop somewhere else. So I, I don't know right. what the answer is, but like to me, it doesn't seem like censorship is, is like good because then they just concentrate somewhere else and I guess in their own little world. Um, and then the people who like, didn't like them, but weren't trying to delete their existence, also feel kind of alienated on the platform that's more friendly, even though they're, they didn't even like the people who were gone anyway. So it's, it's kind of complicated. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the censorship stuff is invisible to common people that don't really pay attention to this, I think. And I, these companies are trying to maximize profit and also you know, do some social good because uh, so much of 
tech is garnered towards people that want to do some sort of helping society, especially since, you know, there tends to be some positive valence for like Google, Facebook, and Twitter, at least, you know, a few years ago, where they were selling their employees on, we're doing some social good, join us rather than, you know, finance or these companies that are just manipulating people. Like we are, we're doing something good. Hmm. And so to sell their employees on that, then you have to let them do some things that seem like good to them, you know. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they like that was a competitive advantage like when they were trying to recruit people, which kind of says a lot because I guess they have to follow through. I mean, I, I think that's dangerous because everyone's idea of what's good is, is different. Um, every, everybody has a different idea on like what's the right. best thing to do. Uh, and it's just because they have so much power for now that it really becomes an issue. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. and I mean, I think they're starting to learn that they're they are in a bubble. Like there was someone that wrote a similar document as me within Facebook. And then rather than just firing them, they actually had him meet with the executives, and you know, he started a group within Facebook. He eventually left Facebook for some other reason, but you know. The response to that was completely different, and I think that that may hopefully be a you know a sign to other people that tides are shifting a little bit. Yeah, that's that's really good. I, I was just thinking this whole censorship thing. I think the other issue is that like there are different standards. So, say for example, um, if there's some really racist tweet but it comes from a certain color person, it will be treated differently from the same kind of language from someone else. Um, that's something that frustrates me. And I understand like that their reasoning is, well, these are the people who are actually being affected and you have to consider like, the history and blah, blah, blah. But um, I, I think that's wrong. I think like if you're gonna have a standard, you have to apply equally and so I think that's another issue with the censorship apart from the fact that censorship might not be the best decision but if you're going to do it then do it do it so like it's very clear and it applies yeah. to everyone so I, I think the different companies have slightly different policies around this where uh, YouTube and Twitter seem to both have this if it's from a historically marginalized group against a historically advantaged group then that's fine but it's not fine the other way. So, you know, you can say hateful things against white people, but not against black people. Uh, while Facebook, I think, is more symmetric. And I, I think the uh, justification that they might give for like Twitter and YouTube is that uh, these groups that may have more power, whether they're the majority or whatever, they, these hate, this hateful content can lead to real world violence more easily than the other way around. And, and I mean, I don't know all the stats of like hate crimes of whether there's more hate crimes against uh, minorities than there are against white people. I mean, within the US, I mean, I would assume that that's actually true, but, and in which case that would be justification for their 
thing. But I mean, there's there's still trade-offs that they have to make. Of you know, and there's so many people that just don't like that asymmetry, and it just doesn't. It rubs a lot of people the wrong way that they're. It's there's not this logical system, and I guess even going back to something that you said a really long time ago of, you know, there was the EMT. And when you were working as an EMT, a male colleague asked you out and that made you really uncomfortable. Uh, it's I, more I think, like he hits on me, which I guess is like yeah. asking me out. Uh, and I, I think that one issue for men that makes this difficult is that there is sometimes an asymmetry in this where if an attractive man does that, then there that is encouraged some, sometimes, while if it's an awkward, unattractive, low-status man, then that is seen as harassment. And so it's hard for them to see what the rules truly are. Like, James Bond can act in a certain way, but if I ever try that, then I'll be fired or something, you know? And that's something that isn't generally acknowledged, but... <laughs> people will understand and like so it, it's just it's difficult to create rules that apply equally to everyone when they don't in practice do yeah i was trying to question myself just now well if it was <laughs> someone who like i thought was attractive would i have been okay with it and i'm i think i'm like leaning more on the side of like, it would have still been appropriate, but I think I would have been less, like, offended, kind of. Mm -hmm. So I still think it would have been appropriate, but I think there is, I'm sorry to say, like, I feel bad saying it, but like, I feel like there is some truth to that. Um, I was going to say something. Um, and I mean, I think there's also one way for men to gain some empathy for this in that, uh, you know, it's really uncomfortable for men to receive sexual attention from men like a homosexual man and yeah there are there's still some of that same reasons of like oh if he can maybe overpower me if i don't give in or um, yeah so and i think that we it's really unfortunate that you know we label this discomfort that men have of sexual advances from another man as homophobia when, you know, women can freely say that they are uncomfortable with sexual advances from someone that they don't want, you know? So I never thought about that. I, and this, uh, us not willing to acknowledge that that is sort of the same thing blocks men from really understanding the female perspective in some ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good like comparison. It's a good way to like, Sort of allow men to understand the female, the female perspective. Uh, there's something I wanted to say. You were talking about the justification for the. Uh, oh right, I don't know about hate crimes per se, but I do know that in terms of like interracial crimes, it's it's not just a historically disadvantaged group. Um, right. That is perpetrating it. Sorry, I, not just the historically disadvantaged group that is receiving it from the historically advantaged group. So yeah, I, I just think it should be, it should be equal. Um, and I, all that, those justifications, I don't like it. I, I just think people should be treated equally. Um, and then if you, you want to focus on fixing the disparities, 
you figure it out from more root the root cause things like your education level or your family background like stuff like that more so than just trying to fix it at the the end of end of the road when they're getting hired for a job so that that, you know that's where I would put my efforts and I acknowledge that there are like lots of issues there but I, I think people are really smart and if we actually focus our energies there I think it would be more fair and produce the long-term results that we're looking for, even if it's difficult to figure out how, because I don't have the answer to that either. Yeah, although I think that there are ways of that we treat people the same, but still that could disadvantage others, such that I mean, one common example is uh, just cultural things of maybe we, as a company, celebrate Christmas and these other Christian celebrations, and we don't acknowledge the other celebrations that, you know, there may be some people at our company that do experience. And so they may not feel as much part of the group, even though we're treating everyone equally, their uh, cultural experiences aren't being expressed. And like, it's, it's really unclear what you're supposed to do as a company, because, you know, maybe you have, you know, 10% of people that want to do a various like 10 different things and you can't really support all of that. You know, you can't celebrate every single possible holiday there is. And you need some sort of cohesion within the company. So I, I think it's at least useful to acknowledge that this does exist, but it's unclear what the solution is. I'm right. not sure that there is a solution to that. For me, that, that seems kind of unavoidable because there will always be a company culture. It doesn't have to be based on religion. It could be something else. So I, I think I acknowledge that like what you're just saying is true, um, that some people could feel marginalized in some way because of that. But I, I, I think that's kind of unavoidable in some ways, which I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think though that uh, the counter-argument would be that there are certain people that are consistently marginalized and that becomes a problem. If it's just that, you know, it's random that who is marginalized and it's different every time, then there's not much that we can do. And it's not totally unfair then because it's sort of randomly dispersed. But if it is that people from this one group are consistently feel like they aren't part of the group, then we should treat them differently in some way to get them included. I mean, it's unclear how valid that is, but that is the argument that they would make. Well, something I would say to that is, um, well, I'm foreign, mm. you know, so I'm technically like consistently, like I will say something and people are like, what did you mean? And I don't like I discover it was, some saying from Jamaica that I didn't realize was from Jamaica. Um, I think that, I think it, it depends on the specific situation. Like say if I were a boss of a company, I would want people to feel included and I would make efforts, but I'd have to decide what the limits were. You, you just have to like it, it depend on the the context i guess yeah and i that that is also a good point of international students or employees 
like have a totally different perspective that isn't really integrated in this the diversity and inclusion programs. They yeah. only care about you know African American, Latino, like Americans, and they don't even when they're looking at the percentages within the company and saying, oh yeah, we have underrepresentation here. They don't acknowledge that you know. And they don't even publish this, but just based on my own estimates of who I interacted with, most of the people weren't born in the U.S. that worked at Google. And so uh, it's it's unclear what, whether you should be really comparing the U.S. demographics with this mostly international employee base. You know, and this is why we have so many Asians and people from Europe at Google, which causes white and Asians to be overrepresented. Yeah, and I, that that one point, it just yeah, that, that's, that's something. Sorry, and they never acknowledge it, and they also never integrate that with these inclusion programs. Where you know, I feel like these people from totally different countries have the hardest time integrating sometimes, rather than someone that is a different race within the same country. You know. Well, this is something that I I also feel strongly about. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if international students have a harder time integrating because I, I don't think they're allowed they're encouraged to focus on that not allowed but like they, it's like I'm sure like if you're having a struggle with something you might you know like I, I remember like I've briefly talked to some of my Jamaican friends about social interactions and how it was really hard at first because a lot of people aren't very straightforward from my experience like in the United States because they'll say one thing and then like they don't actually mean it and that's just like not something I was used to um like say if they were like oh yeah let's hang out or something but they didn't actually mean it like I that's something that U.S. people do and I guess this is what yeah. I realized from talking to other Jamaican friends um so but I wouldn't I'm not gonna dwell on that like I'm not gonna be like I don't know about other people, but for me at least, that's not something that I like super struggled with. It was just something that I had to figure out. Um, but I, I am very annoyed. Like just like it's Black History Month right now, and I don't even I don't even like that Black History Month exists because they're talking about American history. So it's like they have this term, and it's it's like well, there are so many Black people in the world. You're not talking about them. Why is your thing called Black History Month? You know, like, that's just, like, my perspective that someone in America probably wouldn't have. Um, so, yeah, international people are totally left out of the discussion all the time, even though, like, that experience is also super valid. And, like, the immigrant population in, in America, I'm not sure. I think it's, like, 14% or something. Like, it's kind of high. It's high enough. So, yeah. <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I, I think America is obsessed with its racial history. Like so many countries have, have like a terrible sort of interracial history and they are not as obsessed as the U.S. is, at least from what I know. You know, like I'm sure like a little bit, but I don't think as much as the, the U.S. from, from what I understand. And like it it's, doesn't really acknowledge the full story that's happening. So yeah, that is something that I think about, and especially when I I think about like how I feel like I've been censored in some ways. I feel as if like my story is pretty unique because I'm not even from here, but it's like not a part of the conversation. You, you know, it's it's yeah. really strange. Yeah, it may be that 
the America's obsession, I mean, partly because of slavery, which a lot of non-colonist uh, countries didn't have within their own countries, borders. And uh, another aspect is that we don't really like talking about class in America and we don't like acknowledging that it exists. And so, you know, even though class, so class is correlated with race in some ways, right? And so when we want to really say that it was like rich people that screwed us over, maybe people will just say, oh, it's the white man that screwed us. When, you know, and especially in the South, there were many poor white people that also were pretty screwed over. They couldn't vote. And they were also, you know, a, a lot of these like uh, tolls that people will say were against black people voting. They were also against the poor white people voting too. And, but we don't really have the vocabulary to speak about that because we just don't talk about class. And so it gets projected onto white people and sometimes men, you know. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what people are upset about is like a little bit of truth and a lot of myth. Um, like the whole just talking about slavery and the history of slavery and only focusing on the transatlantic slave trade or no one wanting to talk about black people selling other black people or that other countries have their own history of slavery and like of oppression oppressing other minority groups within their country um i i don't i don't think it will change <laughs> i i don't know but i think a lot of it is myth and not enough people I don't know if it will change. I, I think it's not good because you're almost fabricating. You're not because it's true. Like it's true that there were you know, like slavery and like against black people and they were treated badly, but that's not the whole story. And it, it just, it's not good. I, I, I don't know, it's just not good. Yeah, it's always a question of what you focus on. And even if you're telling the truth, you may be over-focusing on some things and you know the other side may be saying that they aren't focusing enough on this and that this needs to be resolved. And, you know, with, until we heal our racial scars, America will never be united or something. I don't, <laughs> this is the vocabulary or language that they speak in, but, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they can, you can heal these kinds of scars the way they're going about it. I think the way to really heal, well, I don't think they'll ever allow them to be healed because whenever they see the disparity, they're going to blame it on the past or like oppression. And like, I don't see that disparity going away until people are willing to look at some of the, the like family structure things like a, like a dad not being there or, um, um, or the biological gene stuff. Because I really think you have to look at the facts and then you can move on from there, you know? So I think that, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't think you ever have total disparity, non-disparity. But I think that if people really want things to get better or things to heal, you have to look at the truth. It's just like, it's how everything works. You have to like look at the stuff that you don't really want to see or don't really want to acknowledge. Um, so I hope that, some of these disparities can change, but I don't think they can until we're really willing to look at 
like human human nature and how things really are. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a strong uh, incentive to not blame the victim in these things, and so you can't really talk about you know other reasons why, for example, the black community might currently be poorer than white people. I mean, there are, of course, historical reasons, the segregation, slavery, and all these things, but then there are still also current causes that may be holding them back that may be internal to their community. And, you know, a lot of the also segregationist thinking of, you know, I don't want to act white and where being smart at school is considered acting white. Like that is clearly a destructive behavior because, you know, doing well in school is how you integrate in society and do well. And, you know, maybe that there are some unfortunate aspects of it where you know, acting white is like, there are some aspects to that to su succeed in school where, you know, you're expected to speak a certain way and that is not the abonic way basically. And there are other maybe implicitly white things I, that I'm not even really conscious of that are, you know, inherent in the educational system, but it's much easier to, I don't, it's just harder to change those aspects. And there will always be, you know, people that are stuck up about grammar and stuff and saying that you have to speak a certain way. And so, yeah, it's, it's tough. But <laughs> I, I think that stuff is nonsense. Um, like I had an English class and I was, I mean, in, in Jamaica or countries that were, you know, like former um, colonies, say of like Britain, they also have those arguments about, oh, like black people weren't taught to love their culture because they were, they were forced to speak a different language. And yes, that's true. However, I do think that at some point you have to move past that kind of stuff. Um, and at least I do know, like in Jamaica, people are very proud of being Jamaican. And I, from what I know, there was some sort of struggle with that stuff. Um, but nobody's going to tell me that I'm like acting white. <laughs> My perspective on a lot of like black American issues is that, um, okay, they might be suffering from like gener passed down through generations trauma, but I don't see how they can get, get better without choosing to work on themselves. If you want to call that blaming the victim, fine. Okay, this is just this is me saying this. Okay, but I think that's the only way that you move forward and isolating yourself from the, the rest of society um, through things like how you speak. And I'm not saying that people do that on purpose. You know, like you, you're just raised in your home, like that's how you talk. But this is what everyone, say like foreign students who come over have to do. Like you need to learn the language. Like it, it's like, it's not this, it's like, again, it's not this like malicious thing that they make it out to be. Like, I, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I just hope that they are willing to work on themselves one day in these areas. Yeah, and and it's a lot of these things. It's just easy to scapegoat some external factor rather than take personal agency to maybe acknowledge that maybe there's a disadvantage, but you still push forward within the system. And you know, I see this a lot in just the intersectionality type things where. It, there's some way in which uh, like all these different attributes of, in people are treated differently. You know, gay people may be treated slightly different than straight, like straight is considered the norm. And so uh, if you are, for example, gay, then you will see that difference. And then you may have that resentment towards this white male cis heteronormative you know, standard or something, and you, you you start hating that that ideal that you have in your head and start projecting that onto white men in general, and like all these different groups start doing that without realizing that you know everyone has problems in their life, everyone has in- insecurities, and they are all made fun of for one reason or the other. Like you may be made fun of for your race or something, but then I was made fun of for this other reason. And yeah, it's not that like white men have everything just set out for them. They, I don't, I just think that there's a general like misunderstanding that everyone's life is full of like suffering and anxiety and like even rich people, they have anxiety about becoming more rich. And like, I I think that that blocks you from really figuring out and solving these problems on your own. Like it's, it's easy to sell people on, Hey, here's some scapegoat. Let's fight against that rather than, Hey, there's some issues that we all have and some insecurities that we have. Let's work through that. And you don't need me to solve that because that's an internal journey for you. Like there will always be these leaders that will try to sell you on something, you know? Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And I'd also point out that as well as disadvantages, each person has different advantages or, or privileges. I don't like that word. So, like, you're always reduced onto, like, one thing, like, say, your gender or your, like, race or ethnicity, but you might have some other thing that's not being acknowledged. Like, you have various, where you lie on for specific traits varies. So, yeah, but I agree with what you're saying. Um, People are generally blind to their own advantages. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh do you have any shifts in your perspective on the specifically on the gender stuff since you wrote your memo? This has kind of gone away from the question I was asking. But <laughs> yeah, do you have anything specific to that? Mm. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I mean, I do try to you know, understand why they want these female-only things and. You know, I do try to understand the female perspective on, you know, the 
expectations put on them. And I mean, I think that there are valid concerns, but then if men aren't allowed to talk about gender at all, then we won't hear the other perspective and see that, you know, there are also, it's not just that the grass is greener on the other side. It, like the, we both have problems and there's different perspectives and without integrating both, you can't really have valid company policies on these things. Like I, I've heard so many stories from men that, you know, went out on a date with a coworker or something and then it broke up and then they just like ended up getting fired because, you know, the, the male this, coworker only. Yeah. Yeah. The, the male coworker would get fired because in these, like he said, she said situations, the, the male loses. And so I don't, uh, there's just like no balance for what men can do. And like, we only hear about the super powerful men that get away with it. You know, these executives and without acknowledging that everyone below them gets screwed over. And yeah, it, it's not that they were men and therefore they got away with it. It was because they were like this, the VP and, the company didn't want to lose them. Like they are just maximizing their own profit. And I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you have any, I'm trying to wrap it up cause we're like yeah. oh, almost two hours now. <laughs> do you have any um, general comments on the tech industry? I guess in general, I, I saw you, you made some posts about Amazon and I don't know if you know, but I was, working with a cryptocurrency project that's really focused on privacy. So I was like wondering if you just had any more general thoughts other than say your memo stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have a lot of random thoughts that, you know, are sometimes summarized in tweets. Um, I, I think that generally we are giving them a little too much power tech and I mean they are the biggest lobbyists and we are afraid of government intervention and there's you know so much talk of oh we don't want any form of well like especially on the political aspects they are aligned with left-wing values so people on the left don't want to go against these powerful companies even though that's the traditional left-wing viewpoint and then right-wing people don't want to go against them either because they tend to be more libertarian in their finances and want to get the government away from that. So, you know, they are getting this free pass. And even though, you know, there's so many things like Amazon really doesn't pay taxes and, you know, there, there's just a lot of monopoly issues too with these things that aren't really being acknowledged. I think, you know, one sort of radical policy that I haven't really heard anyone speak of, but I think might actually be a positive and would, I, I haven't thought it through, but I think it should at least be thought about is just removing personalized ads completely. I think ads in general are a net negative to society in a lot of ways and making them personalized is just intensifying that 
and increasing our consumerist materialist uh, viewpoint. And I, I think that's generally not negative. I, I, of course, if we did anything like that, Facebook and Google would, their value would completely drop. But I mean, what is their value based on? It's based on their ability to get you to buy stuff that you don't want. Like that is their product. And so, you know, I, I think we in general should think more about ads and the effect that they have on us. I think we too often think of ourselves as consumers and, you know, rather than just as, you know, people in general and, uh, that, that is hurting our local communities and just hurting, like, just the commodification of everything is hurting our the human connection that we have with other people and you know, I, I think that there's a lot that we could do if we try to take ownership of our lives in some way and without without this stigma of no we can't interact with companies because or we can't try to influence what companies do because that would be socialism or something, you know, like we, we can take ownership of how we live our lives. And, you know, Europe does this in some respects more than America. And, you know, it's not as if Europe is like completely destroyed, you know? Okay. Well, when I was listening to what you're saying, um, I don't, see ads as like a negative in themselves because I do feel like you you it does it can help you to find what you want um not always what you don't want but I I'm also against the personalization of ads to the point of like you becoming the the commodity like you're the interest group that an advertiser can select but especially when you don't realize what's going on. So I think just on the, the consent aspect, I would definitely agree that people need to be able to opt in to like having themselves be tracked in order to create these um, like audiences for people to, for advertisers to target. Um, but not necessarily that ads in themselves are a bad thing. And then in terms of like the social side of, uh, people spending less time communicating with each other. I do think that's true. So I would say, even though I think people should be able to consent, it would be better if there was, was less personal ads going on. And I think that if people want to reach people, I'm always like, just, just do search terms. Like what are people trying to find, you know, rather than going based off of like what they liked, what TV show they liked or something. So I do agree with that. And uh, I don't, it is ridiculous that Amazon doesn't pay much taxes. Like that that's just shouldn't really be happening. I I think for both people on on whatever side of the political spectrum that's kind of an issue. Uh, for them to be growing in power or or other tech industries that are subsidized in some way by the government. So yeah, that's what I that's what I think about that. The, like the privacy issue is a, is a big deal and the consent with what is done with your your information. But I don't necessarily think that like ads are bad. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have a 
very anti-consumerist bias, but and it's mostly through a lot of introspection of okay, what actually makes me happy. And there have been so many instances in my life where I thought if I just bought that one thing, I would be happy. And you know, it's often based on the advertising that made me believe that. And rather than, and so I, I think that it, once we start realizing that things aren't going to make us happy, then, and it's that advertising is putting us in that mindset. I, I think then we start realizing the negative effects that advertising has and just, you know, it takes our attention away too. like so much advertising in public spaces. That's something that I think a local community can take ownership of their city in some ways and just say, no, let's not have built huge billboards and all these other ads. And, you know, other cities have done that. And at least some studies have shown positive effects. I mean, obviously no one really knows, but I, I do feel some like internal conflicts when you're saying it because part of me is like, well, the companies are just trying to reach the consumers. But I also agree with the like things being in your face all the time and that it does take away from, you know, things that really matter, um, like personal, like interpersonal interactions with others. Um, and that also that in some ways people lure you into believing that this thing will satisfy some need you have that you wouldn't really have thought to do, use that thing you're going to buy for without them telling you. But I do feel like conflict because I'm, I'm not sure like what the best route is for yeah, that I mean, stuff. I think we generally assign companies quite a bit of rights that other countries actually don't. And I think that we have this belief that you know if we didn't give companies this full right to do whatever they want, basically, then that would destroy the economy. And, you know, just the idea that, you know, GDP is some objective measure of how good the, comp the uh, country is when really it isn't. Like, it's just one factor. Yeah, and, like, the fact that it's just a measure of how much people are spending and, like, oh, wow, great, they're spending so much time working so that they can buy these things that don't actually improve their life. Like, sure, that's great for us. How? You know, if people just stop doing so much stuff, I think that their life would be better. I, I, I also tend to be a very minimalist and I just very counter to a lot of these things. And I think there's so many forces that are, pushing us towards this more materialist perspective because I mean there's no money in pushing you towards a non-materialist perspective like don't buy things like who is going to put out ads for that you know <laughs> obviously there are like books and you know self-help things for this yeah yeah I get what you're saying um I have like a note here of like things I wanted to talk to you about and I think I've pretty much pretty much covered it so like is there anything else that you would like to say or ask me or anything huh I guess just a general thing for like you and your audience is just yeah 
I think having the giving people the benefit of the doubt and acknowledging that they are a person and have a perspective and that and for whatever movement you follow, like I mean, there's like the intellectual dark web type stuff or whatever. Try to find critics of it and see that there is criticism with it and that if you aren't willing to question certain moral norms that you have in your head, then you will go towards the same ideological bend that other people do. And, you know, the same way that people will label some people as, you know, ideologically possessed, basically everyone is ideologically possessed in some way (laughs) and everyone virtue signals in some way. And so I think just introspection in general and self-doubt is useful for connecting with people and finding truth. It's not necessarily the best for finding happiness, but I think paying attention to politics is not (laughs) the best thing for happiness anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I would also, I agree with that for, you know, like myself and other people listening too. And we were talking about Twitter earlier. It's it's kind of crazy out there on, on Twitter sometimes. It's like people aren't even people. They're just like objects of like, they just symbolize some ideology that you either hate or love. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, it is difficult to take the time, especially if you've, if you've spent time studying something and then coming to your conclusion, you might like think like you don't need to revisit again, but it is good to try to, you know, like have an open mind. Yeah. And like, there's also the dehumanizing aspect that I even observe in myself of like judging people based on their follower count and Mm. assigning more worth to people based on how many followers they have. And, Oh, this person is worth responding to or something and not. And like, that is completely dehumanizing. And yeah, you don't realize that, okay, they're all humans or at least hopefully they're humans rather than bots or something, you know, but, and just because they don't have a huge follower account for whatever reason, you know, they are still just as valuable as a human. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I find myself doing that a bit too. And it's, it's more an issue of like priority. Like when you, especially when you're on social media, like if you met someone, like if you were there in person, like you wouldn't have that, you know, like there's not something following behind them, giving numbers. Um, well, so, I think that there still is. Uh, like, if you're talking to the, you know, the president or the CEO of this big company, a rich person, you will give them more respect than a homeless person. Probably, I mean, I would, and I know other people do. Well, I think that's a little. That might be a bit different because I do think that people gain respect sometimes based on what they do. Like why, what that is, you might like disagree with why they've gained the status they have, but depending on what that is, you might want to talk to someone more because they've done something that you really admire. But on social media though, it's, I don't think it's as clear, I would say, as like when you're just talking to someone in person, you might be intrigued by them in a way that you, like you wouldn't because you would just focus on the numbers instead. Yeah, I, I've just observed in myself and even of other people that they will give, you know, even me more respect than I deserve. And that's actually a barrier to connection because 
like I, it makes me not want to, you know, make, take risks that may change their perspective of me. And it also changes what they say to me. And, you know, I, of course there are different priorities in your life and you want to talk to different people based on what you may gain from that interaction. But I think it's still interesting to introspect on your, on how you give different levels of respect to different people and how that plays out. I, I think a lot of it is in some ways harmful to other goals that you may have. And I, I don't know. I, I just think that this is one other unspoken social norm that is once you understand why it happens and, then you can sort of hack it in some ways. No, I think there's a lot of merit to what you're saying. And um, it's very introspective of you and it makes sense. Um, so yeah, that that's something that we should think about. Yeah. Okay, well, unless there's anything else you'd like to say, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me. And I really wish you like the best whatever you're up to and doing and um i i admire what you've done um you're not the only person that i admire but i i do and i hope that you know like i know it already has had an effect you know but i hope that things change in terms of like some of the discriminatory hiring practices and people like figure out ways to help um those like groups that they're trying to bring up but in ways that aren't harmful to other people at the same time yeah yeah and i mean i think just generally integrating multiple perspectives and presenting it in more than one way is i mean a lot of it is maybe uh, palatable to like the left-wing way of thinking and they they just under they assume that everyone thinks that way because those are the only people that are really allowed to talk. Other people are shamed and they don't realize that other people have like different ways of viewing the world and it just doesn't make sense to them. And it's not because they're racist, misogynist people, you know, it's just that they view the diff the world a different way and different have different value systems, but that these programs can still be, still have value in those value systems. Like, you know, social cohesion is actually a very large uh, value for conservatives, right? Yeah. Everyone, remember, you can go to his website at firedfortruth.com. I believe it's .com. And um, he's still raising some funds. Um, I did forget to ask you about your lawsuit. I just remembered. Um, but that's also going on, so be sure to, to support him. Yeah, I mean, we, we sued Google and there's clauses in stuff that they force every new employee to write to force them into arbitration. And so they sued us because we didn't do arbitration. And they yeah, mean Google? Yeah, Google. They, Google is actually very aggressive in their private dealings. <laughs> I mean, as you would expect from any company, but yeah, you know, I, 
that that's about as much as I can say there. Okay, but that's still going on. So yeah, we should help you. I think <laughs> people should talk about it. All right. Well, uh, oh, did you want to say more? Sorry. Well, I mean, I think just concentrating on living a good life and uh, you know really figuring out what your values are and aligning your actions towards that does more than. I mean, that would help me more than doing anything related to the lawsuit, I think. Okay. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks.